Hi, I'm Marion Ellis, and this is the Surveyor Hub podcast, the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. In this podcast, you'll hear from surveyors of all flavours, businesses of all sizes, and also conversations with people working in the business of surveying, supporting the work we do. We'll be chatting about what matters in our work, our career journeys, and learning how surveyors make a social and physical impact every day through their work. Don't forget to rate, review and follow the podcast or pop over to Google and leave us a review. You can also show your support at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the Surveyor Hub. Today on the podcast, I'm chatting to Gemma Cornwall, building surveyor at AG Built Environment Consultancy based in Lancashire. So hi, Gemma. Great to have you on the podcast. Nice to be here. Amazing to be here, actually. Get over that embarrassing bit where I fluff my lines. That's where I usually uh, say hi and then forget who I'm talking to or, <laughs> or whatever. It's great to catch up with you because your name has sort of kept on popping up on my feed in various guises for the last couple of years, I think. And I was urging you to go for Young Surveyor of the Year Award until you found out you're a month <laughs> too old. <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. I'll um, I'll pretend that I'd have I'd have got it anyway if I'd have been young enough. And, yeah. you, you could have been an award winner, Gemma Cornwall. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was trying to think where I where we first connected. I think it might have been the Surveyor Hub, the Facebook group, wouldn't it? Yeah, it was probably slightly more than two years ago now, coming up to two years ago, and I had just finished renovating our own house and I was thinking I'd quite like to do this as a job and I was just on Facebook and I sort of typed in surveyor or something along those lines surveyor forum and that came up and then yeah dived in there and then we obviously had the women in surveying group as well briefly before I took my Facebook hiatus. (laughs) It's it's interesting isn't it Facebook because it's a love-hate thing and the reason that I use it is because it works, you know, all the tools and functions, LinkedIn groups, all the others, you know, unless you, there's a couple I've come across that are paid platforms that sort of work, but it works. But there's something even I feel uncomfortable about it sort of being on Facebook and everything that goes with it. And so I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with, with Facebook, but then I literally just use it actually as a business tool. You know, I just use it for the Surveyor Hub and and the other bits and pieces work-wise that I do. And it's interesting that actually I've had more problems on LinkedIn, if you like, with professionals than I have on Facebook. And the Surveyor Hub is an interesting forum, certainly over the, the whole pandemic, because it was there for people. It was a place that they could reach out. But also there's always some Mr. Angry in there. And I say Mr. because it's mainly the men. you know. And we've all had to learn how to communicate online, I think, anyway, through the, the pandemic. But we've had um, a good clear out. We've got some people who have got a team of moderators and all posts are approved and things now. So it's a, a much nicer place to be. But it's been an interesting journey to see how the industry and how surveyors engage on an online platform in that way. You know, we've got over 4,000 members in the the group now and it's really, really engaged. So, you know, just one of those things. But I, yeah, I I totally get you. How did you, you mentioned then you just sort of finished your degree. I mean, today I want to talk to you a bit about the kind of work that you're doing because I know you're interested in sustainability and retro, all of those things. I'm quite interested in learning more about that. But how did you get to surveying? 
you're a trainee surveyor at the moment. Are you on your APC? Oh, there's no trainee. No, I'm... Oh, oh. No, I'm, no, I am very much a trainee, but it's just oh. not in my job title. Because so. I missed that you've qualified. <laughs> I, I know everything now. No. Well, essentially, so I, I taught computer science and economics at A-level for... 10 years and we lived overseas um I taught in a few schools well, all sorts of different schools over here so from kind of local comprehensive to independent to public school and kind of everything in between and it was great but I got to the point where I was sort of found myself looking forward to the holidays and living for the holidays and it was actually I was painting a skirting board on one of those little like little skateboard type things I don't know what they're called but one of the Aldi middle aisle purchases that you never know that you needed so I sat on one of those and I was painting my skirting board in one of the summer holidays and I thought I spend all year looking forward to these six weeks or whatever it is and actually I don't really enjoy the rest of the weeks as much as I should be doing because I'm living for these six weeks so if I do this for another 30 35 years I'll literally be just living for the six weeks a year, which isn't really a way to live. And I think as soon as you start to feel like that with a job like teaching, you can't give yourself to it. It has to be something that you're happy to be doing and you want to make a difference and so on. And I sort of stopped caring to a point. Um, I didn't have that fire anymore. I was getting quite a lot of fire from painting skirting walls. <laughs> mm. so, um, so I went back to work anyway in September. And the class that I had at the time, one of the six form classes, there was a careers fair. So I took them off to this careers fair, sent them on their merry way and got chatting to somebody from Northumbria University about some of the distance learning courses that they do. And I'd already sort of thought I want to get involved with something to do with kind of construction or building project management, something linked to that. And obviously once I started doing a bit more research. And I found out about the, the distance learning courses. Building surveying seemed to tick so many boxes. So it's all right, fantastic. So a day or so after this careers fair, I couldn't sleep. So I'm there looking through all of this information. And by the time I woke up in the morning, my husband woke up and I said, just so you know, I'm going to start doing a master's degree in building surveying. And it'll be distance learning. So it's OK. And I'll fit it in around work. And then eventually, hopefully get a job as a building surveyor. And he's sort of reached the point now we've been together 13 years. So he's reached the point where he knows just to say, all right, OK, that's good. <laughs> and not, not, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and not question like, you know, where the hell's the money going to come from to pay the mortgage if you don't get a job as a building surveyor and that sort of thing. So, but I did it as a bit of a sort of soft landing mm. in that kept teaching. We did have a, a two-year-old daughter at the time who was obviously mm. taking up a lot of time. So she's obviously grown up with that as well, with mummy either being at work or working on the computer for university or, you know, generally she's used to me being quite busy and then this was 2019 it would have been started the degree in January 2020 started putting the feelers out jobs and then obviously March 2020 happened and all, all the stuff that came after it so there weren't any jobs really for when I was going to start applying for jobs there weren't any so it was quite demoralizing and obviously you couldn't get out and do work experience because mm. nobody mixed with each other luckily I've been able to get a bit of work experience before and I was just thinking right so I, I I've got to basically apply to wherever I can, get signed up with any recruiters that I can, but it just wasn't moving the amount of jobs. I mean, now, right now, there's jobs all over the place. You could probably just walk into one, whereas then it was very much, it seemed to be that everybody well, it was, was uncertain, back. wasn't it? You know, and so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and quite right, people weren't, weren't taking people on. So it got to that, but then obviously I spent most of lockdown listening to your podcast as I was working out in my in my garage gym. It, it varied between that and um, like murder murder documentary type podcast. <laughs> 
So I'd often hear people on the podcast say, oh, well, I just sort of stumbled into surveying. And I was like, oh, how can you just stumble into surveying? I'm trying everything I possibly can. And there's just no doors. Now, obviously, I'm very impatient and, you know, global lockdown and, and pandemic and impatient and trying to find a job. Not a really good sort of mix. <laughs> but as soon as things started opening up again, it was it was great. Um, I got a job. I, I bit the bullet from the September, the next September and handed in my notice and thought, right, I've got half a term now. I've got sort of eight weeks to find a job. Luckily, I met some very nice people at WSP in Manchester. Uh, They took me on on a a zero hours sort of basis as a bit of a a punt to see if I was any good at at what I was doing. Um, And again, so I I won't always hark on about women in surveying, but the the partner that was in charge of our department there was um, Sarah Davies and she was fantastic in you know, looking at this non-surveyor, looking at this economics teacher and looking at how it can, how it, how I could have been applied to what they did. So I got that bit of exposure then. And obviously it was zero hours because of the lack of certainty because of the pandemic and stuff. So, but then one day a job came up where I am now um, at AG. And these are this company that I'd done a bit of work experience at before. Mm. They're local to me. They're brilliant. They're really nice people. (laughs) It's like, doesn't it? You know, I think many people will resonate with different parts of your your journey to get to where you to where you are Gemma I know mentoring and getting work experience through lockdown was one of the hardest things ever and I think that's where platforms like the Surveyor Hub listening to podcasts just sort of help inject a bit of you know what it's really like to you know to bring it to life I think for for people good and bad because that must have been so so incredibly hard and you know, to go for job interviews, I know a lot of students or, you know, people sort of early on in their career, it's hard enough going to a job interview in the in the first place. But how to go in those circumstances and, uh, you know, I know when my husband works, they've recruited people that he's never actually met physically. And, the, and all those things make a make quite a, di- a difference, you know, but I guess really it's all, it builds resilience and that's the thing to take from it, although it can feel really hard when you're not moving forward. It's interesting you say that about recruitment because right now, so as we're recording this, it's in August, it's darn hot and there's lots of adverts on social media recruiting for trainee surveyors taking on the graduates already I guess for the you know the the next the next term and I have to say a lot of the job descriptions a lot of the job adverts are boring as hell (laughs) and and I've had a bee in my bonnet about this over the years in that we we just commoditize and commercialize it you know it's sort of this is the salary this is the job these are the hours let's see if you're good enough you know whereas I think now we need to be thinking about you know, the whole social impact and what's important to people. And more than ever, I think, a global pandemic has made us feel, if I'm going to spend time here doing something, it's got to be more than worth it. And it's not just about, about the money. So it's really interesting to see all the different job adverts come up. You know, and nobody's ever going to like those posts anyway, in case someone else gets the job or whatever. So you never know how successful <laughs> they are. But I do think they could do more to to bring it to life yeah I think there's a couple of recruiters that I follow on LinkedIn that I've followed since before I I got the jobs that I've I've had and it's really interesting to see how how differently they approach it I just two two extremes sort of come to mind there's Jess Reed yeah 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 Yeah. Jess Reed Um, and her posts are always so 
kind of down to earth and this is the job and here's a bit more about it and here's the right kind of person we think it'd fit and you know some people would say kind of flowery but I don't think it's flowery I think it's making sure that people understand enough about the role not just like you say this is a bullet point list of things you'll be doing this so much you'll get paid for and, it. and Jess Jess runs a podcast as well great yes. podcast and yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I think it's called Building Foundations. Yeah. 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 So it's much more kind of personable than it's it's like this This is the right person. Not I think when people refer to being candidates as well, it's, I don't know, it's all of it compared to another one. And I can't remember his name, so I can't even name him, but I wouldn't anyway, where I got a, obviously a copied and pasted a message asking if I'd be interested in a job. And throughout it referred to the candidate as a he. Um, <laughs> don't take much, does be, it? No, no, you know, he will be responsible for driving the company forward and he'll be doing this and he'll be doing that. So I sent a message back and said, just, just to let you know, I'm, I'm not looking for a job. I'm, I'm very happy where I am. But just a bit of a heads up for the future, maybe sort of proofread your, your messages or just don't gender them. You don't need to gender a job advert. Um, but know, I don't think you're allowed these days. Well, I it's think, it's you know. bizarre. It was just, and, and whether, I don't know whether men would read it and, and not notice it. And whether it's just, but, but the notice if it's a cheat. So I just, why make things difficult for yourself? It's a bit like my previous employers won't be listening to this when I used to be a teacher. But if I used to copy and paste someone's school report, you don't put any gender in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not that I did that, obviously. I, I wrote very personal, <laughs> detailed school reports for every single student. But yeah, you just, you just make your job easy for yourself. But it's, it does, it, it's those little things that are kind of, it's not, I wouldn't call it a microaggression, but it's one of those where you just think, no, this job was designed with a man in mind obviously because mm. it's written as he throughout and that's that's the kind of thing where you just think no maybe we're still not fully don't know accepted or there's, there's well, something well, it's there that, it's that it's that unconscious bias isn't yeah, it exactly you know, and exactly. yeah it, it's just it and it is in those little things that accumulates together to make a difference and I heard a great question to ask in interviews actually recently and it was something like and this is for you as an interviewee to ask your potential future employer was something like tell me about the person in the business who is least like you and you know what can you tell me about them and that says a lot about you know the culture someone's prepared to address that you know do they even know perhaps you know if you're being interviewed by a white gray-haired man do they actually know that person of color and what makes them tick and you know and that tells you a lot about how diverse they are how defen- defensive they get about asking those questions and whether they actually get to know each other. You know, it's always hard answering, asking questions, but I thought that was a, a really good one. And I think also for people going for jobs, I think there's one of the things I think you should look at for is so- social proof. Because when you see someone advertise a job and they say, yeah, we really look after our people and yeah, we do all of this stuff. And the only proof that you've got of that is them telling you or, you know, you might get to, to speak to someone that they've identified that you speak with, you know, to, to validate it. But I think there's lots of ways that a company can share its true values through its brand. And when you're marketing your business or, your, you know, uh, your work, it's not just to get future clients. It's also to get future potential uh, people um, into your business. And so social proof of, you know, if you say, you know, we mentor and support people through, it's like, well, where's the evidence of that? Is it just the picture of everyone qualifying at the end, you know, getting their jobs and car and everything? Or do you see key people from that business commenting on posts, contributing to 
different you know, platforms or whatever, because it really tells a story about how generous they actually are. And, you know, and I guess there's an element of, you know, confidentiality and, and all of those things. But, you know, if you're genuinely there to help people and nurture talent through the industry, where's the social proof that you you're actually doing that? You know, it's quite, it builds trust, doesn't it? You know, um, I think with our industry, because well, you don't have to be chartered, but, you know, that's the obvious route for a lot of people for when they start. You need that support. You need the guidance and the mentoring and the, the teaching. And it's really easy to say we support people through their APC, as in we'll give you enough work to get you through your APC. But that's not really support. So, again, I've not got a hell of a lot to compare it to, but I know at AG, there's there's a called the AG Academy. And I really like that idea. But I will be honest, when I first started coming from a teaching background, I thought I was a bit cynical. And I was thinking, you know, this is just going to be not very well organized and, you know, whatever else. And I don't know if my boss will listen to this. So he'll probably, uh... <laughs> how dare you think that I was not going to be organized? <laughs> but, it's, but it's absolutely true that, you know, and lots of corporates out there have got academies and programs and, you know, it, but how do you really know they're really going to help you? And, and I get lots of students and trainee surveyors reach out to me asking for help because they don't know or they're asking is this how it should be yeah that's it you know particularly in terms of things like working hours number of jobs they do today a day particularly on the residential side and the conditions that they're they're put under sometimes and and that's a hard thing because a lot of trainees and students are out there effectively fee-earning in some capacity, even though someone else might be signing off a project or a job. But there's still an element there of, well, you're learning, but what pressure are you under? What responsibilities are you taking? Do you feel not just technically supported, but mentally supported? You know, it's um, the consequences to all of the work that we that we do. And I get lots of people reach out to me, you know, and, and some of the working practices you know, are quite frankly shocking. And I and I worry um, about them. And, uh, you know, the other thing I think that um, people looking for work and signing up to roles which have a trainee qualification element in it is to look at your contract. Sorry, I'm not going to scare you off, you and your, your boss. <laughs> but you know, as, we're, as we're talking about it, because you're signing up to, you know, a commitment to get qualified. You know, so say some people go on an 18-month qualification program to get ASOC or whatever at the end. And that's quite a commitment for both people, both your company and the and you. But what if it doesn't work out? You know, and you know, I've recently heard of one uh, one surveyor left a company and he's got a massive bill for the training and the loss fee earning he would have had. And you just think that's not helping anyone. It's certainly not helping anyone's mental health. And but it made me think about how when we're younger in our career. And I did, I, you know, had similar things when I was on a graduate program. No one's given us legal advice on this employee contract that we're signing when we've never signed one like that before. So it's quite um quite a daunting thing, I think, to go through. And that's where I think the likes of matrix and support networks and mentors in other areas can really, really need to help you younger guys, if you like, coming I mean, it can be. I think it can be quite a lonely. Even though we do work with people all the time, it could, it could essentially be quite a lonely sort of job. And I think um, I feel like I've been very lucky. You shouldn't have to feel like you're lucky, but I feel like I've mm. been very lucky in that you know I've got this now. And the AG Academy is actually brilliant, and it is. It's, I didn't need to be cynical at all. And the support, and like you say, the kind of the social and the mental side of it that everybody cares about how everybody feels and nobody's sort of taken advantage of. 
but then when you when you go and you, you talk to other people in other roles or in other companies you just think my god you know the days where you feel like you may be hard done by because you've had to take on a little bit of extra work but then there's other people that that are, are not able to sleep at night and they're, they're running themselves ragged you just think no like this should be a job that you're doing because you enjoy it and it it gives you as much back as you mm. give to it and there's just so many people that aren't in that situation but again sort of don't know where to to go for help so I think it's great that the things like Lionheart and and Matrix are much more sort of publicized now and hopefully they're up to the people that are taking them up on their their services mm. um but it's yeah really, I think it's almost as though you know we you know as I look back on my career now I'm an oldie you know we, <laughs> I look at it and think you know, I hear. I remember people saying to me, "Oh, you, you learn on the job, and it's experience, and that, and that, that it is on the technical, you know, the actual job itself. But what's really hard is how to be employed. You know, how to have that handle that first job, and no one gives you support on that. And one of the things I'm really grateful for is when I so I took a few years out for health reasons before I went back to to do a degree and then I had a graduate job and everything and in that gap I did everything Gemma you know I was a cleaner in a bakery I did a YTS on a school reception I dealt with uh, on the telephone mail order car parts customer service (laughs) for goodness sake I know what a big ball for and roll cages or did you know and British Gas you know, and, and I tempt for quite a bit. And whilst that was uncertain and hard and all of those things, it meant that when I started my graduate job, I remember there were six of us and they were all, we were in, I can't remember what department it was, sales or something. And they were all worried about picking up the phone and speaking to someone apart from me. And I remember thinking, how the hell am I going to survive 18 months of a graduate program? Uh, but it gave me that just bit of confidence that if it all goes wrong, then I know I can do something to earn money, you know. Absolutely. I think there's so much to be said for having a career before your career, almost, or, you know, some some jobs at least. So, yeah, I know exactly what you mean in terms of picking up the phone. And it's, I've seen the same with graduates when they first come in and, oh, I don't want to speak to this contractor or I don't want to, whereas I suppose if you used to, in my case anyway, picking up the phone to somebody to tell them that their child has been a little today. It's not just the skills that you, you bring, it's that, that element of maturity into an industry and, and type of work where we need that. We need to be a calming influence. We need to put our foot down sometimes. You know, it's bringing that maturity and life experience into, into a role. I'm really interested in... Um, in the fact that you did computer science and economics. Um, I know quite a few teachers, actually, people who then become surveyors later. So it'd be interesting to see how that shapes your career going forward and, and things. Are you never interested in valuation? Not really. No, I mean, I've, I've assisted with a little bit here. We, we do a lot of commercial property. We have done some valuations on some of the, the residential ones before they turn into projects. It's not something that, kind of fires me up really um but I think even in the the 18 months two years that I've been here what fires me up has already changed yeah, yeah. <laughs> so again the the kind of when I was younger I never used to keep boyfriends for very long I'd get bored and move on so I think it's it sort of it transpires into other parts of my life in that I've lived in 20 houses 
in 36 years and don't tend to stay anywhere for for more than a couple of years and it's a bit like I'm on a sort of witness protection program but I'm, I'm not but it's, that, um, it's, that, it's that variety isn't it when you get that that adrenaline dopamine rush and I'm moving yeah. on to the, ne- to the next thing and yeah, yeah no like I that that totally resonates um with me and some parts of surveying can be like that with project work and I think with residential you know it might sound like you're doing six jobs a day you know six properties but actually all of those are different or potentially different and so it's how you uh how you view it but I'm disappointed that valuation didn't ring any bells for you Gemma I mean it, it might do in the future I don't know it's yeah I, I think maybe commercial property valuation would would mm. potentially interest me I at some in, stage I, I think it's just interesting because it's not just about the numbers it's very much for me I think about customer psychology and the economics of what's going on you know in our country or in the world at, at any any one time so I mean but that's the view that, that I've taken some people just look at it as as numbers <laughs> and, and that's the thing about about surveyors are all so darn different aren't we that there's no two the same and different things make us make it stick. Tell me about a bit of the work that you're doing um, or how you got involved in the sustainability side of things. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so uh, it's a bit of a sort of running joke in the office that I'm the kind of resident tree hugger that, you know, uh, haven't eaten meat for a very long time and <laughs> drink oat milk and wear recycled shoes and do all my shopping in charity shops. So for a long time, that was kind of running joke and then the more conversations we had with clients on both the residential side and the commercial side so with the residential side we tend to have clients that are registered providers or they do assisted living that kind of thing so they've got portfolios of properties rather than just individual ones but the more conversations we were having the more we realized our clients actually don't have a clue where they need to go. They really want to know where they need to go and what they need to do. And they're, they're being as proactive as they can and as time, as much as time allows in their role. But the clear, concise information isn't coming from anywhere. And it was very much the case where we, we like to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. And if you can offer them more information or a different service that would tick another box for them, then great. Because obviously we want them to have a fantastic experience with, with us as a company we don't just want to offer them part of the service that they want. We want to be able to offer them the whole thing. So, so we got talking more. And on the commercial side, obviously, there's there's different deadlines coming in for different levels of EPC. If they're investor owned, then the investors need to want, want, want to make sure that their portfolio is still worth something in what we've got now, eight years. They don't want to be left with these these assets that they can't sell that aren't worth anything. So we we, we had a good chat with a lot of our key clients and came up with a, a service offering, an initial service offering. Um, and because I was interested in it and you know, AG seeks, seeks, seeks to kind of empower people and let them do what they, they want to do, it was very much, well, here you go. This can be yours. You you have this as a project to run with almost. So we, we've built up a, a service offering now whereby we can offer EPCs as a standard, but then with a, a consultancy professional commentary with that, to explain what they can do, some of the different options available to them. We've got QSs here, so the QSs can cost up these different options. And then we can model lots of different scenarios in terms of the energy, energy outputs. So we can offer them that in a really clear way. You know, we're not giving it to M&E consultants. We're giving it to people who manage property or who own property. They don't want loads of numbers and loads of confusing figures. They just want it simply. Do we tick the boxes? If we don't, what do we need to do? How much will it cost us? So it struck me as really crazy that that didn't actually exist in yeah. very small pockets. There's some brilliant, brilliant people that do it. But then there's a lot of gatekeepers, the people that are sort of early adopters 
and the companies that are early adopters into kind of ESG strategy and that sort of thing. They, they seem to have assigned themselves the role of gatekeeper, which just seems crazy because they're not telling anybody how they're going to improve the environmental side. Yeah, do you know, I find, I find this quite fascinating and I see it in different aspects of, of the industry and on, on different topics and, and subjects, but it, effectively it's, it's sharing the wealth for the greater good. And we're talking about the planet. You know, Absolutely. as scary as farcical some people might think that is, you know, we're, we're talking about the planet and our and impact our, our everyday lives. And therefore, you know, those that have the knowledge, the experience do need to be much more generous with their content, spreading the word, thought leadership. But there's a, a misconception, I think, that if you start to share that, you lose your competitive advantage and you only lose your competitive advantage if you don't do it the right way, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's where it comes back to purpose and and why you're doing what you're doing. And there's lots of evidence on on brands and marketing brands and, and how you can can do that. Earlier today, I was recording a podcast with um, a chap called Professor John Edwards. I'll put a link to it in um in this um uh, in the show notes. And he teaches this stuff, you know, retrofit and, and things. But we talked about the guidance and where do you go? for that sort of one source of the truth. And it's really confusing. It's really, really complex. And, you know, what what we talked about and what I said was you need to be in the tunnel. It's all right having, you know, all of these, you know, headlines, all of these stats, all of this is what you should do. And there's a lot much, there's much more on the commercial side than there certainly is on the residential side. So you've got to be in the tunnel. You've got to be where, where those people are at to know what they need, what makes them tick, you know, what mode it needs to be in, you know, so is it numbers, is it words, is it videos, you know, easy read, you know, just to start the conversation going and start things moving, but also knowing that, you know, this is a, a moving feat at the end of the, at the end of the day, because, you know, what we think might be energy efficient now, actually might get it wrong, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of waste and so the whole the way that we we approach it and start to spread the word I think is is important but there's so much more that we can we can all do to empower people and when it's interesting you're saying you're talking to your clients and they're coming to you to help you know we can help our clients be better by knowing what they need and lots of them need to tick off you know environments and corporate social responsibility things and so we need to help them tick their boxes so we need to know what they need to do you know and I think so and so it's always thinking sorry it's always thinking wider isn't it much bigger picture much bigger picture absolutely and it's you know from a commercial point of view I think you're absolutely right knowing what they need and the fact that we talk to our clients quite so much it's not guesswork you know some of them have come to us and said said we need this in other in other ways we've said right you own offices that you're having done uh, you have renovated you're having refurbished we're overseeing the project have you thought about having them brian certified you know it's owned by investors if you can show that you've actually got something solid you've got brian certification you're not just said oh we're working on our esg you've you've got certification there to show that actually yeah you've my favorite quote deeds not words you've <laughs> you have to bring emmeline pankhurst into it you know you've actually done something that shows that you've made a financial commitment to to improving your sustainability. So we link that in as well. But I think, yeah, it just completely baffles me that anybody that's involved with this, perhaps naively from my point of view, me thinking everybody wants to save the planet and actually people just want to make money, but that anybody involved would would gatekeep that sort of information because 
my god there's enough of it to go around we work really closely with some some brilliant companies in the area some individuals you know that share their knowledge and, and we share what we're doing as well and and then we can like you say we'll make mistakes but we can build on them and and it's the people who as with any sort of service offering and, and any sort of business I suppose it's the people who offer that knowledge and share it around that are going to be successful and they're going to have sort of a good time being successful in that they will they should hopefully get a lot more personally from from what they're actually doing so yeah I, th- I think to me it's not about one company coming up with the perfect solution as with sustainability as a whole it's not about one person or one government coming up with the perfect solution it's about everybody tens of millions of people making tiny tiny changes and doing things imperfectly but giving it a go <laughs> that's that's when the tide starts to turn it's it's not whenever you know we don't sit around waiting for the set of instructions that will that will lead us to this I guess, sustainable planet. I guess though that's how things have always been done, in that somebody somewhere has told us what to do or what the rules are, whether that's RICS with their code of conduct and red book valuations and what you know, whatever, or the government, you know, it's sort of that what we're always looking for is that one source of the truth to tell us this is the path that you need to take, this is what it should look like. But when we don't know that, not really. I mean, there's lots that we do know, but it's so uncertain. Then we need to find a different way of working together. And that's things like collaboration. There's a scary word for, for lots of people. One I remember, well, there's only two times, two times I've been really overwhelmed by a spreadsheet. Once was when someone sent me a spreadsheet that I had to fill out for GDPR when I was uh, in, working in a corporate, which, which I thought it was fine. And then I opened it up and it was massive. And I was like, oh my God. Um, and the second time was when I got sent or downloaded a spreadsheet. And it was actually from the RICS. And it's to do with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And I can't remember what that campaign was, but effectively it was sort of in this spreadsheet. If you fill it in, it'll help you work out how to meet the goals, how to meet sustainability. It was a couple of years ago now. And I opened it up and... You know, I, I just got totally overwhelmed and thought, oh, well, I, there was a, looking back now, I recognize I'm dyslexic. And so either anything like that was going to be overwhelming, but I just couldn't join the dots between how do I fill this in, me working for myself or me doing what I do. And then this sort of big goal of let's all tick the boxes to save the planet. And it was too big a gap. And I think we need to be really interested in that gap. And so the more that we can do to showcase what we do and importantly how we do it and the benefit it has means that we can all make small changes, you know, and doing it in a meaningful way because how you might do it for you and your business and clients is going to be different for me, but showing that it's possible makes a difference. You know, so I'm a company I've um, partnered with before is called B1G1, buy one, give one. And, you know, when I run the, at the time, the mastermind that I, I was running or the courses I was running, you know, every time someone gave an accountability report or completed it, they would donate money and they would get to choose whether it was, you know, electricity for a hospital or bricks for a home somewhere or, or whatever. And so it's, you know, as as you do, you give at the, at the same time and it just becomes part of what you do rather than let's raise money for charity or, yeah. you know, the, the stuff that just seems so false and synthetic these days. But it's meaningful in your corporate social re- responsibility. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we all say, you know, we recycle paper and don't use carrier bags and, and stuff like that, but that's only the, the, the tip of it. But it's integrating it into our work so it becomes much more 
meaningful. And going back to the whole, you know, recruitment thing that we were, we were talking about, people want to work with companies who who live their values and also hire people like that. I mean, I'm sure you never got asked on your interview, did um, did you buy your show clothes in a charity shop <laughs> or, or what else? I mean, <laughs> are you a vegetarian? <laughs> you know, but but do you know what I mean? But clear and, and not that everybody needs to do to do that or be like that but it just shows you're clear on your values and what's important to you absolutely De- definitely I think we're definitely finding kind of linking it back into the the, the work that we do the, the landlords that we work for that have got things like offices obviously like we're saying with after covid people aren't coming back into the office unless they absolutely have to so if they're trying to attract and retain talent within the industry whatever industry they're in they do now need to make make it obvious that they're doing something. And yeah, a few recycling bins aren't, aren't going to cut it and, and light sensors on the toilets and things, you know, because, because there are options and there are options that are known about. And because a hell of a lot of the workforce is now millennial, <laughs> and, you know, we need to be ticking the boxes, doing the, the, the visible actions to make sure that, that they're not just words. But yeah, I think there will be a, a wave of change one when the regulations change and companies and landlords are going to have to make the changes but two when people realize that they can't actually just they can't employ the best people in the industry by you know greenwashing what they're doing but I think I keep saying to people it'll be like a sort of trickle at the moment and then give it a few years give it maybe I don't know three four years and then there's going to be this kind of waterfall moment where there has to be sudden change and hopefully it'll be irreversible it's interesting because you then start to talk about, you know, think about targets, goals and quotas for different things. And for a lot of people and a lot of firms, until it becomes fiscal or implications or, you know, the there's rules, regulations, et cetera, and fines, people won't do it. In part because they don't know how to make it into their business or or whatever. When I did a lot of customer experience work, one of the things I would talk to clients about is a maturity matrix so it's looking at, you know, describing, you know, what it's like now, but what it could look like in the future. What will you be doing? How will you be feeling? Um, how will you notice things? And and sort of almost sort of measure on a how mature do we feel as we go through rather than have we hit the target? Have we hit the numbers? You know, I think there's a comment what the, the law is. It's a, you know, as soon as something becomes a target, ceases to become a good target. Parkinson's law, I think it is. You know, and, and that's where just things, people just focus on the goal. That's what we've got to do. And they forget, actually, there are other things that can make a difference. So, you know, are your people in your business acting and thinking environmentally? You know, is it a topic that always comes up at meetings or do you have to force it on the agenda? You know, so there's lots of ways you can feel as though you're heading in that direction. You, you know, you've got to tune into it you know get the feedback from your employees get the feedback from your your clients and it always depends on what you're measuring yourself um against obviously but it's just tuning tuning into that because that's when it becomes credible it becomes real and authentic and people then feel comfortable to have the good ideas and also say do you know what this is just the wrong thing to do this is and it gives them that confidence to do that and that can help really shape and steer uh, a business to to where it wants to be Absolutely. And I think that, that confidence is building, but I think it's going to take time. Um, and That's I think, the thing, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it? Is it going to be a generational thing? You know, potentially. everyone retires, but I just think that's a shame. Yeah. I mean, potentially, but, but interestingly, 
um, a lot of the people that I've come across that are sort of genuine eco-warriors almost, and, and it feeds into every aspect of their life, they're actually, you know, of the older generations. So, uh, well, older than me anyway. So it's about, I suppose, getting the right people in the right places, the right bums on the right seats. And then in these kind of meetings, there'll be a voice that speaks up and that says, no, we're not doing it this way. We can't do it this way. And we can't do it this way because it's not the right thing to do. Not, we can't do it this way because mm -hmm. it'll cost us too much money or we can't do it this way because it's too cheap. Or, you know, not linked to the commercial aspect because it's just the right thing to do. Yeah, which is why, you know, it should be people, planet, profits, you know, in, in yeah, that order. absolutely. Are you just yeah. saying that just reminded me, my granny used to make her own clothes, you know, or she would recycle clothes into, you know, quite thrifty and make it into to something else. And then if I think about, you know, my upbringing, you know, it was shopping at Tammy Girl, Etam, River Island, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or aspiring to, you know, and that whole sort of churn con consumerism. And if anyone's ever seen the uh, I think there's a Stacey Dooley documentary on jeans. Yes. You'd never buy yes. a pair of jeans again. Saw no. that, you know. And so, just thinking about that, but you know, I guess I almost sort of want to take my granny's mindset of, okay, well, how can we reuse these materials? You know, how do we make and mend? Um, you know, make do kind of a kind yeah. of thing, yeah, yeah. in a positive way. And and those skills are the same. And perhaps we've just you know laid over it a lever of climate anxiety and a bit of dramatics and language that some generations might not understand, but yeah, they, yeah. they've got the concept of how, how to do that. It's a tricky thing, That's isn't it. it? I think it's become quite cool now because it's quite retro to like shop in charity shops or to mend things, you know, and reuse and that sort of thing. But you're absolutely right. You know, if you look back, plastic bottles weren't a thing when my grandparents were younger and when my parents were younger, potentially. I don't know. Get the glass my... bottles back. And get yeah, absolutely. My, my dad had a milk round and, and he used to do it with glass bottles, he'll tell me. <laughs> and people played outside. They weren't sat inside watching TV with the heating on and all sorts of things like that. And it was just accepted that that's what was done. And I think there's, there is this narrative, the boomers have killed the planet and the boomers are responsible for everything. And okay, yes, they're responsible for something. <laughs> but it's it's we can't apportion blame to any age group or to any part of the world or, you know, we're all as responsible. And fast fashion is, I, I will hold my hands up. I love a Primark bargain as much as the next person. But it, it does give me that sort of anxiety now when I think I don't actually need, I will, I will actively not buy stuff now and feel good about it because I don't need that stuff. And that stuff's just going to end up in landfill and, you know, it saves me money, but it's, I hate it when more stuff turns up in my house and you'll know what it's like with, with kids and how they just seem to accumulate plastic oh, yes. <laughs> and it's plastic with absolutely no use whatsoever. And it just seems to appear. They just seem to manufacture it out of nowhere. And grandparents do what grandparents do. Grandparents are there to spoil your children. And my mum and dad are absolutely fantastic. But every time my mum turns up at my house, she's got to carry a bag full of stuff either for me or for my husband or for my daughter or for all of us or for the house or for the cat or, you know, so she's always thinking about other people, not thinking about herself. But I think we've had decades and decades now of, of that and that overconsumption. And I think it, it kind of settles my mind to think that we could be moving towards 
uh, not over consuming and just living on what we need. And, and if it, obviously I don't want to force people into poverty to actually achieve that. But if inflation at the moment is going to have a bit of that effect and we're maybe not driving as much, we're not buying as much in the same way that COVID helped the environment, maybe this horrendous cost of living crisis will help the environment. But again, you shouldn't have to make that sort of trade off. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. And it's, I think a lot of this is, again, understanding consumer and public psychology. Not that I'm a yeah. psychologist. Maybe that's what I should. Maybe I should read yeah, about Get into behavioral economics. It's, um, um... <laughs> uh, yeah, I might ask you about that. Because I think it's understanding why we buy so much. And there's a great podcast, actually, a uh, link to it in the, these are going be good show notes. Um, <laughs> I think it's actually on Audible. It's Darren Brown. And he, he talks about the psychology you know, all the tricks that he does, but he talks about the psychology of it, of it all. And I think it's understanding why, why do we don't buy so much plastic crap? What is, because my, you know, my grandparents and, and everything, uh, uh, in-laws and that are, are the same, is why, why do we do that? What, what, what is it satisfying? And it's interesting. When I worked at my corporate job, I used to do a lot of shopping, clothes shopping for things I didn't need. And it was all about making myself feel better to look better, feel more professional, confidence, you know, weight went up and down with babies and all of those things. And when I started to work for myself, I stopped. And it wasn't about having less money. And I didn't have any money for a while when I when I stopped working. I didn't need to. I was feeling satisfied and fulfilled in my life and in working in other ways. And so I guess it's understanding the reason behind all of that. And then also finding ways to work smarter. So, for example, a friend of mine is a stylist. I'm very exotic here. But, you know, she's a stylist and she helps women find the clothes that suit them and, you know, had my colours done and, and all of that. You know, and I, by investing in that, I now buy less and I buy smarter and I buy better quality and I'm happy with it. And so I don't have that urge to go and shop. And I think if we apply that then to how do we get people to change in terms of environment, you know, it's all about convenience and it's about scratching uh, that itch, you know, putting the heating on because you don't want to wear a a jumper. Well, you know what, let's get some good quality jumpers that will keep you warm. You know, um, it's changed the way that we live and operate, but it's doing it in a towards motivation rather than a, I don't want to be, I don't want to be without, you know, uh, gifts. I don't want to be without, you know, that luxury. And, and and I guess having money in your pocket and being able to spend in that way makes us feel comfortable, doesn't it, in terms of how good we feel about our lives and, and things. And so I think there's a deep seat, root seated piece there in terms of unless we get to that psychology of how we can make people feel good about their choices and better, Things aren't really going to change. No, that's it. And I think there is, there's, there's, it feels like there's quite a lot being done in terms of marketing eco-friendly products. In they're now being marketed as the luxury good, and they're they're superior to the ones that you can buy a hundred of for the same mm-hmm. price. So I think I think that when they be, look look at Tesla, you know. They're okay looking cars as far as they go, but they're they're sort of nothing. When you look at that compared to a Lamborghini, obviously the Tesla is quieter, streamlined, not as fussy, doesn't shout at you quite as much as a Lamborghini does. But they're the fastest selling cars in the world. So they they've as bonkers as Elon Musk is, he's obviously got a very good marketing department in that they appeal to the mass market that can afford that kind of car and they're, they're doing good for the planet and so on because they're being marketed as they, cool. They, because they are, but what they have is um, a sense of purpose. 
yeah and people yeah. people buy into that and I guess also it's that generosity of understanding the brand that has now enabled other car manufacturers to then go ahead and share and do similar you know or better and push that in a that innovation forward and I guess you know on a you know bringing it back around to property that's where we'll be there'll be these market leaders these firms or these people these key people of influence out there who not necessarily tell us how to do it but show us what they're doing how they're doing it why they're doing it and that has a massive ripple effect then which allows those who might not understand the graphs and the spreadsheets and it's being you know in the tunnel oh actually I can see how this now might affect me and how I can can move forward and and that's you know I'm, I'm big on social impact of making a, a difference even in small ways you know and I think if we all did more of that or think in that way then oh save the planet <laughs> if, if we all if we all make a tiny tiny change and there's however many billion people on the planet and if everybody makes a tiny change there'll be a huge change and and that's that's the way we need to look at it rather than looking at we have this massive hill to climb we have to hit net zero by 2050 but I'm not going to tell you how to get there and and if we don't then we'll all drown I don't think that's really the way to encourage uptake yeah <laughs> and, and that, I think that's the thing with uh, you know, is the thing with sustainability, climate, diversity, even, you know, even as surveyors or people in working in property, if we all started to do one thing or explore one thing or even just talk about it, then that just has a has an impact on and pushes that momentum forward, doesn't it? But Gemma, it's been, honestly, it's been fabulous talking to you. Can't believe I've told everyone about my shopping habits. <laughs> um, it's been really good. Thank you ever so much. I know people will really enjoy uh, listening to you and um, Thank you for having me. and learning about your journey to become a surveyor and look forward to seeing how things go. Yes, thank you. I'll keep you updated. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show today. I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find the show notes and links to any guests and resources we've mentioned today on the website, lovesurveying.com. And don't forget to show your support by buying me a coffee or you can rate, review and follow the podcast on your usual podcast platform. It really does make a difference and helps spread the word and reach a wider audience of surveyors who just love what they do. See you next time.